When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by FanDuel.com, the leader in one-week fantasy football leagues. And right now, FanDuel will match the first deposit dollar up to $200 for the first 50 people who use the promo code HANG at FanDuel.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of October 20th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk to Grantland's Jonah Carey about the World Series matchup between the Royals and the Giants and what it says about the state of baseball and the American way of life, perhaps even the European way of life. We'll see where the conversation takes us. Uh, we'll also discuss the rise of biometric testing in the NBA and other sports and the ethical questions raised by ownership monitoring players' sleep and precious bodily fluids. We'll then interview longtime Boston Globe writer Bob Ryan about his pioneering journalism career and his new book, Scribe, My Life in Sports. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Percy Harvin's surprise departure from Seattle and the trope of the clubhouse bad guy, villain, enemy. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent friend pairs All Things Considered, and a man who's going to be rooting against Haiti at RFK Stadium on Monday night. How does that make you feel, Stefan? How do you know I'm going to be rooting against Haiti? I've I, already I've already established You're wearing that I a don't shirt like, right now that says I hate Haiti. I don't. That's my <laughs> first clue. I don't like Hope So. Hello, lady. <laughs> I've already established that. <laughs> I like the Haitians. They've had a tough row. 
Does it make you feel bad that you're rooting for the U.S. in this Women's World Cup qualifying against? Again, like, you're assuming I'm rooting for the U.S. I have seen Team Haiti play in men's World Cup, uh, not World Cup, but men's international soccer in a game in Miami against the Spanish team. And this Haitian scored a goal, and that was it. That's the greatest accomplishment. In it the was, history of Haitian They lost, soccer. like, whatever, by a lot. But, oh, my God, they couldn't have been happier. Um, hey, it's Mike Pesca. Hey. Um, talking Haitian soccer. <laughs> the Haiti story and the Trinidad and Tobago story, both very nice stories. People rallying to support these teams, get them money. They had yeah. not, nothing going on. You well, know, they, they were desperate for funds to train. And these women came to the United States, and they've been they've been supporting. Wow, makes yeah. you seem like even more of a jerk for not for not rooting for, rooting for them. them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, yourself further. Go Mike. Haiti. I just said it. There, fine. <laughs> Mike, uh, you're the host of the Justin Mike Pesca. Got to mention that, oh. and maybe a recurring banter feature. We'll see how it goes. But you made the great point in our interview with Roy Blunt Jr. the other week that the thing that's missing from pro football is whimsy. So I want to inaugurate a whimsy watch. Ooh, good. I think. Um, well, you're going to tell me. It's your feature. Whimsy watch. Peyton Manning throws 509th career TD pass against 49ers. Teammates play keep away from him with the ball. It turns out they had practiced it, that Peyton was in on it, and that he like taught them how to like pretend to be keeping the ball away from them. So Anti-whimsy. Whimsy or n- not whimsy? <laughs> you should see the drilling. You should see the, uh, the all-22 tape of them doing the drill. <laughs> this was, uh, yeah, this was quasi-whimsy. Also, two of those players got cut and put on the practice squad the next day. Well, we've got to have a ceiling. So you don't want to go whimsy in week one of Whimsy Watch. You're going to right, go quasi-whimsy, then maybe make people work for it. Week 12, we'll have whimsy. you got to earn your whimsy in the NFL. It's like anything else in the NFL. you got to demonstrate. You don't hand out whimsy on day one. No. No. Whimsy uh, is earned. It's not given. All right. Now it is time for our first topic of the day. Uh, the World Series will start on Tuesday night in Kansas City, which is a crazy thing to say for a couple of reasons. First, the Royals have been terrible for 30 years. And second, while the Giants have a recent history of postseason success, neither San Francisco nor Kansas City were particularly close to being the best teams in baseball during the regular season. Each one notched the fourth best record in their respective league. Um, so here to talk to us about what it all means and perhaps whimsy and whether whimsy is is earned or, or given in baseball. It's Grantland's Jonah Carey. He is the host of the Jonah Carey podcast. He is the author of the book, The Extra 2%, How Wall Street Strategies Took a Major League Baseball Team That Is Not the Kansas City Royals. From worst <laughs> to first, maybe there's a sequel planned, maybe not. Uh, hello, Jonah. Oh, don't sleep on Up, Up, and Away, the story of the Montreal Expos who are even in worse shape because they no longer exist. That came out this year. Oh, that came out this year. My bad. So yeah. I consider them a 500 team and therefore not in worse shape than some... <laughs> denizens of Flushing Queens, for instance. The Montreal Expos have been undefeated for the last decade. So, there you yeah. go. so Montreal did not make the playoffs this year, so that would have been a bigger World Series upset. But um, people yeah. are still surprised by the Royals being there. And I've read a bunch of stories by smart people that say, essentially, the playoffs are a crapshoot. And so, you know, Royals making it, it's like, you know, who knows? It's like not super surprising. But then Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus, we've had him before. Love that guy. Um, He's great. He's great. He's smart. We'll stipulate that. Um, he said that's not entirely true, that actually the Angels had something like a 70 or 75% chance. We can quibble about the math, but they were the superior team in the regular season. They were the favorite in that series. So basically, I want you to assess how unlikely is this series, and are we like not <laughs> surprised enough by it? Are we just saying, oh, this is a crapshoot, and not realizing it was super unlikely for the Royals and Giants to play in the World Series? 
I want to say Royals more than Giants, despite the fact that they had basically identical records and finished in the same seed, you know, coming in that they were both wild cards. Yes, they have to win these extra wild card game. But the thing that jumps out at me about the Royals is that they got here in the first place. The nature of their team is so extreme, and, and the comp that's been made is to the Whitey Ball era Cardinals teams uh, that ran like crazy, and they didn't have very many home run hitters. It was basically Jack Clark and a bunch of Jackrabbits. When you say Whitey Ball, you're not referring to, like, pre-integration. That's like Whitey, no, that's Whitey Herzog. No, but that is, a, that is a very, very excellent Slate Podcast joke, however. No, no. <laughs> Thank I'm you. Referring... Right, right. right. Other, other outlets <laughs> might get nervous, yes. <laughs> Former manager of the Kansas City Royals, actually, and then the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, he instituted this kind of uh, running style, and, and the Royals have that. The Royals are first in the major leagues in stolen bases. But what jumps out at me is, and my excellent colleague uh, Randy Gisarelli has written this before, the Royals were last in the major leagues in home runs, and they were last in the major leagues in batters taking walks. That is the first time in the history of baseball in the universe that a team like that with last in homers and last in walks has even made the playoffs let alone gotten to the World Series. So, you know, the Giants are a very good team, and they were once the best team in baseball this year. They had the best record in early June, and they kind of fell off a little bit. Uh, they had a couple of injuries, and they worked it out. And they've been here before. So, I don't know. I'm not that shocked by despite them being a wild card, but I'm absolutely shocked by the Royals. Moreover, first team ever to go 8-0 in the playoffs in their first eight games. That's remarkable. Ned Yost really learning on the job. I mean, you know, he really gets criticized a lot, but the guy has absolutely changed his ways just in the last, couple of weeks that's pretty remarkable to me they're the story that jumps out more than anything i'm really shocked that they're here but i'm pleasantly surprised as well it's been a postseason where we've made fun of the managers a lot and ned yost particularly especially early in the playoffs yeah you wrote a piece for grantland asking is bruce bochi one of the best managers in baseball history Mm -hmm. and you say yes tell us why bruce bochi deserves to be put on that pantheon with other greats well, and credit to a gentleman named Chris Jaffe, who wrote a great book about baseball managers that assesses all of them in baseball history through, what is it, the late aughts, I guess it was, up until about 08 or so. And uh, it really looked at, uh, 2008, by the way, and it looked at, uh, you know, just all kinds of managers and their techniques and so forth. And he argued that Bochy was one of the best managers of all time. I think he said number 30 through his Padres career, before he ever got to the Giants and led them to two and now three World Series. And that's a tricky thing because the Padres, of course, went to one World Series but weren't all that good for much of it, and they were below 500 team. And, and this gets into a tough kind of uh, assessment because you have to figure out, you know, what is the manager's responsibility and how much do you give to the players. So, you know, how much credit do we give to Joe Torre for having all that talent on the Yankees? I would say some, but I would also certainly give a lot of credit to Jeter and Rivera and all those other guys. Bochy obviously has good players too, but he really seems to have made the most out of guys who are not all that great at times, especially in San Diego and to some extent San Francisco. There are a few ways that we could do this that are kind of easy to look at that any layperson can understand. One is something called expected record versus actual record. So basically, if you score 600 runs and you allow 600 runs, you should theoretically be a 500 team. If you score 600 runs in the last 600 and you win 90 games, that is overachieving. That could be because of the bullpen, could be because of luck, and it also could be because of the manager. And Bochy has consistently overachieved in that respect, or at least his teams have. So that's a pretty good indicator. And then when you watch him manage in the playoffs, and you see the way that he manages the playoffs differently than the regular season, that's a good indicator, too. He's willing to pull his starter in the fourth inning. He's willing to go to... You know, maybe not his closer, but at least his big hammer of a reliever, whoever that might be, in this case Jeremy Affelt, in the sixth, just as easily as he would go to him in the eighth. There are things that he does 
that not only work out, they look good by results, but they look good by process as well. He really, really uh, strikes me as a manager who does all those things. We can't say with absolute certainty the way that we can that, you know, Jeter is the ex-best shortstop of all time. Very easy. We just compare the numbers and that's no problem. But based on what we've seen, there you go, 43rd, 143rd. Jeter's terrible. No, but um, (laughs) Bochy, you know, does these things to make his team overachieve. So I love advanced stats, but I'm going to cite a couple of cases where not that advanced stats are wrong, but they don't quite get there. And it's sure. two of the things we've been talking about. I think Bruce Bochy is a great manager. And I think looking at things like run differential is fine. And I think looking at the exact moves, when we evaluate a manager, we look at this decision, win expectation, that decision. What about everything he does beforehand? What about not even something so ephemeral as setting the tone but he seems to develop players well. He seems to utilize players well. The way he handles the regression of some players like Tim Lincecum, but still getting a lot out of them, I would say that, you know, there are certain players who just seem to, Cody Ross, other players, seem to just, like, blossom on the Giants. Like, bad players are actually good when they're with Bruce Bochy. Is it magic? I don't know. Over 20 years, it's something. So I'll throw that in there, and I can't even say exactly what it is. It's not ephemeral, but it's something that doesn't show up in game decisions. And with the Royals, I think they're better than they seem because they're so good at defense and we're just not where we are in measuring defense like we are at measuring offense. So the stuff we're great at measuring, home runs, walks, those are very important. They're terrible at, clearly terrible. But, you know, Baseball Prospectus again wrote this article. Do they have the best outfield ever? And it seems insane, but maybe if our defensive stats were as good or or analysis were as good as our offensive stats, we could, in fact, be saying, you know, this is the best defensive outfield ever. This is going to be the nodding along and agreeing podcast because those are two completely spot-on points. And then let's start with Bochi. Uh, totally agree with you there. To me, and, and of course I'm mentioning all this tactical stuff, to me the biggest role that a manager has is making sure that people don't stab each other in the clubhouse. It is running a cohesive clubhouse and leading. It's very difficult to quantify. Our very good friend Sam Miller actually wrote an excellent article uh, for ESPN the magazine last year, and he talked about the way that Oakland had done that, that they, they built chemistry, which is you know, maybe partly through Bob Melvin and partly through other means or whatever, but that was the goal of Billy Beans, which is you know, Billy Bean, the quants going after chemistry, sort of interesting, but you know that's what you want. That's what you ideally should have. And yes, Bochi seems to have done that, and he certainly has made the most out of flawed players. I think the best example that I can think of you know, if we're going to tease off of the extra 2% off of the, the Rays of that era, the Rays side, Pat Burrell, uh, you know, was in his 30s and a big power hitter, a 30 home run guy for the Phillies, to a two-year contract. Pat Burrell sucked rocks. He was so damn bad. And not only that, but for whatever it's worth, he was not all that well-liked in the clubhouse. It was just a guy that you didn't want on your roster whatsoever, but he was signed for 7 or $8 million a year, which for the Rays is like $8,000 million dollars a year so they had to figure out what to do well they cut him loose that's how how little they thought of him they said we're going to eat this money because we just can't stand this guy he goes to san francisco and he puts up an 866 ops for the rest of that year 20 home runs in about 110 games or so and is just dynamic just completely lifts an offense that absolutely needed it and that team went to and won the world series aubrey huff was another guy like that by the way, another former Tampa Bay Ray, oddly. And he also was kind of seemed like he was on the downside, and they got the most out of him, too. So, you know, it's not just that they kind of coax better performances. It's that they coax better performances out of dogs. Bochy deserves credit for that. With the Royals, yes, I think the defense plays a big, big role in it. We're trying our best to quantify it. The, the most um, 
excited I've been about in baseball innovation in a while is what MLB Advanced Media is doing. It's something called StatCast. And you probably, maybe, you know, if you're a baseball fan, you've seen this somewhere probably. Uh, for instance, when Alex Gordon made that big catch in the LCS, StatCast came out with a thing and he said, this is his root efficiency. This is how fast he ran. This is how quickly he got to the ball. This was the angle of pursuit, and this is how he caught the ball. Once we have that play-by-play and spatial derivative uh, analysis available to us, the same way that the NBA does, by the way, with how much this guy moves and where, you know exactly how far does he go on the pick and roll, that's going to help us with defense a lot because right now we're estimating. When you go from estimating to actually measuring, you'll be able to tell with a much greater level of certainty. So um, you wrote this book about the Rays um, where you described in great detail their organizational philosophy. This is um, something that's been done with the Oakland A's, obviously, where they had an organizational philosophy. And that's been my question about the Royals. And, you know, there's been this false dichotomy created about like, oh, they don't believe in stats and they're not a Moneyball team. And we all know that that's not the case. But the question is, did they kind of luck into this speed and defense approach? Or was there intentionality there? That's something that I feel like I still don't understand. Oh, I'd say probably a little bit of both. I mean, uh, you know, ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the best players to come through your system, especially if you're limited by revenue, but even the Yankees and the Dodgers and teams like that. I mean, the Yankees built their dynasty through, you know, Williams and Jeter and Rivera and Pettit and Posada and all these guys were homegrown, ultimately. I mean, the guys that they signed at the time were not superstars. It was Scott Brocious and Paul O'Neill was complimentary players. So every team wants that. And the way that you develop players does start usually with, well, it's either the draft or international, basically. And so if the Royals are drafting guys uh, who have a lot of speed, then that's obviously an intention of theirs. And if they're trading for a guy like Lorenzo Cain, then they're pursuing a guy like Lorenzo Cain. They could presumably, if they have Zach Greinke, go out and get you know, almost anybody for somebody like that. If they want to make Cain the linchpin of a trade like that, it tells you that they're interested in Kane you know, and all his skills, which is pretty good hitter, but really a great speed and defense guy. So I, I think that it's something of both uh, to some extent. You know, obviously they targeted a guy like Mike Moustakas, not a speed guy whatsoever. Uh, Billy Butler, really, really not a speed guy, one of the slowest guys in all of baseball. So it's kind of a, a mixed bag, but I think that there has been some intentionality. And moreover, especially if you look at who they're complementary players are, their spare parts. I mean, Aoki's not quite as much of a base dealer as he was. Uh, but he's still pretty fast. Obviously, Dyson is a bench guy. You could choose to carry whoever you want on your bench. I mean, that's a spare part. You can pick up a power hitter or a fielder or whatever. The fact that Dyson's on the roster tells you something. And the guy that really interests me is Terrence Gore. Terrence Gore has no discernible baseball skill whatsoever except the ability to run like crazy. He's really not a good player. He's not. And the thing is, fast guys are often good defenders. There's no evidence of that either. It's not like he's got great roots or whatever. But he pinch runs like Dickens. He's great at it. Uh, this reminds me of um, the 70s, the Oakland A's, Charlie Finley, the, the, the interesting and enigmatic Charlie Finley, went out and recruited a guy named Herb Washington, Washington. who was a track star. He, he literally, I mean, I'm making fun of Gord to some extent. Washington could do anything. He didn't even understand base. I but they had put a Washington glove. on the base pad. I, thought, I don't even think he had a glove. I don't, he probably didn't have a glove. I'm not even sure he had a uniform. I think he just wore a singlet and got on the field. But he was, he was really good. You know, he was very good at that role. They put him into pinch run that worked great. And I think that managers should do more of that. There are a lot of fast guys in the universe who don't do other things. They should find a way, teams, to carry a guy like that rather than the 
eighth, ninth, whatever guy out of the bullpen. You're never going to use your eighth reliever, but we've seen what a weapon a guy like a Gore can be, and to some extent, old school, a guy like Washington. It right, is l- true, but I will throw this out, that, oh, they're brilliant for having Gore. Gore scored almost no meaningful runs in the regular season. In the playoffs, it's like, yeah, they're brilliant. I don't know if they're utilizing them differently, and it's just like their bullpen. Hey, maybe their starters aren't great, but their bullpen is awesome, or they're great in one-run games. In the regular season, they were 22 and 25, or whatever it was in one-run games. So, like, this great way to build a team these subtle ways, it didn't even show up to the playoffs, which says something, I don't know, maybe luck. Well, it is, of course, it's luck to some extent. And, uh, you know, it, people have tried to come up with a magic formula for the playoffs for a long time. Uh, of course, Nate Silver, who we all know, who I work with at 538, he wrote a great uh, chapter in a book called Baseball Between the Numbers back in the day, and he talked about the secret sauce for playoff success. Mm-hmm. Well, Colin Wires, for baseball perspective, debunked it a few years later. And, by the way, Nate has done more meaningful research than I'll do if I live 7,000 lifetimes. But in this case, you know, Nate wasn't right. I mean, it turned out that there really wasn't any one thing that does it other than score more runs than the other team. There's nothing. But I do think that the nature of – not I think. I know the nature of playoff baseball is different because of the schedule. So the bullpen, I think, is the germane point here. You know, we talked about – uh, how good the Royals bullpen has been and how impactful they've been, it's because you can run those guys out every day. You can run them two days in a row, knowing that they're going to have, even three days in a row, knowing they're going to have an off day coming up. Regular season, you don't have that. And the stat that kills me there is you look at Herrera and Davis and Holland. This might be the best trio of relievers ever. I mean, they're unbelievably good. They, were, they give up three home runs and 230 innings this year, which is preposterous. Those three guys pitched 14% of the Royals' innings during the regular season. Okay, 14%, that's fine. Seventh and eighth and ninth inning guys, 14%. In the playoffs, 32%. One-third of their innings of the Royals have come from these guys. Now, part of it has to do with when you go 8-0, of course, you have a lead, you get to go to those guys. But part of it also is you don't have to hold them back. If you're tied or even down a run or whatever, you could still go to Herrera and Davis and Holland because there's nothing to lose. You don't have to save these guys because it's April and you need six more months out of them. You could use them now. You know you have a day off, and that's fine. And I will say Ned Yost absolutely deserves credit for that. He's using Herrera for four or five or six outs, which he would never do in the regular season. We saw that with Wade Davis to some extent. He's using them aggressively because in the playoffs there's no, literally no tomorrow. So go ahead and do that. That's a very bochy move, and uh, I'm encouraged by Yost. I mean, again, we've slammed the guy left and right, but we all make mistakes in life, and the guys learn from his mistakes. I don't know if there's literally no tomorrow. I'm thinking I about that. Not. Well, I mean, uh, you know, we can all die. It's possible. <laughs> uh, John, I for, ex- one, there, for one, one day for the Montreal Expos, that was true. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say the Expos are, are undefeated since we started the segment. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jonah, thank you very much for uh, being with us. You can read his stuff on Grayland. You can listen to his podcast, which shares a name with him. And you can read his books on the Expos and the Rays. Jonah Carey, thank you for being with us. Thank you, guys. It is now time for a word from our new sponsor this week, and that is FanDuel.com. I must confess right from the, from the jump here that I quit all fantasy sports a couple of years ago because it is such a huge time suck. First of all, you have to listen to Stefan talk about his fantasy team. But um, right. I quit all fantasy sports 20 years ago, and I'm playing fantasy football for the first time this year. So I'm entitled to talk a little bit. Yes. Um, but I found myself... In, uh, in those days, updating my roster instead of eating, instead of bathing. It was a bad scene. But FanDuel so, um, has come around in the last couple of years, and it is designed for people like me. It is a fantasy football site that allows you to start fresh every week and is also designed for fantasy obsessives like Stefan Fatsis. You can play um, fresh every week. You can win money 
Um, and one-week fantasy football means you are not wiped out early in the season. So if you have a guy complaining about, oh, my team stinks because, um, you know, all of my guys are injured, that will not happen because it's a one-week fantasy league. You can pick a new team. You can go again every week, and you can win immediate cash payouts. Um, entry fees start at just $1. There's no season-long commitment, no upfront fees. And they're paying out $10 million every single week this NFL season. Uh, go to FanDuel.com, click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, and use our code, which is HANG, the first word of hang up and listen, as you might have noticed. And they'll match your first deposit dollar up to $200. That is up to $200 free. The offer is good for the first 50 people that use our promo code, which is HANG, FanDuel.com, where every week is a new season. That is FanDuel.com. There is a new story in the NBA preview edition of ESPN Magazine. It's by Pablo Torre and Tom Haberstrow, and it is about biometrics. They cite the introduction of those sport view cameras, you know, the ones that are at the top. They give us all that cool data from the ceiling, ceiling data, as I call it. Ceiling cam. Yeah. Um, they track player movements on the court. But there's also this stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't really know about teams monitoring players' sleeping habits, their diets, assessing the composition of their blood. Um, Torian Haberstrow, quote, Sacramento Kings GM Pete D'Alessandro, who says, we need to be able to have impact on these players in their private time. It doesn't have to be us versus you. It can be a partnership. But is that really true? I think it does kind of sound like us versus you. Um, they raise. Right. The fo- it doesn't have to be us versus you if you acquiesce and don't complain. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't. Ha- it is us versus you. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. have to be us don't versus you. Don't think of you. it that way, please. Um, so they raise the following questions, and I'm quoting them. How long will it be until biometric details impact contract negotiations? How long until graphs of off-court behavior are leaked to other teams or the press? And how long until employment hinges on embracing technology that some find invasive. So, Mike, I mentioned sleep tracking, um, mm-hmm. tracking what players eat, blood tests. Um, what did you make of the story and the kinds of ethical questions that it raises? It doesn't seem that people have really thought out the ethics. That's the thing. I think that it's promising. I can see why an owner or you know a forward-minded GM would be really interested in it. could also see why a player who has a big investment in being the best he can be would be very heartened by it. Yeah, but let it me doesn't... interrupt and just mention the anecdote they tell is Andre Iguodala. He plays for the Warriors. He'd always had insomnia, took like three or four-hour naps during the day, which is pretty common. For NBA players, and then he does the sleep testing, and now it turns out he's sleeping more, and his hormone levels are better, and et cetera. So that's kind of the gist of it, that you do this personalized testing, and you you know, get healthier and get better habits, et cetera. Right. And we should also say, when we say enough sleep, if you want to envy NBA players, their wealth, their women, their fact that they get to put on tank tops for a living, do you know how much sleep they're recommended? <laughs> you know what, that, what they should get? 10 hours. That's the standard in the NBA. God damn, these guys have a great life. Anyway, so what I was going to say is, yeah, it would seem that uh, the players, I could understand why a player would be into it, why a team would be into it, but it doesn't seem like anyone has done any ethical thinking. And the way this is going to be adjudicated, I guess, will be union guys will try, or union representatives will try to block, you know, very aggressive implementation, maybe as well they should. But there are other industries, especially industries with uh, workers who aren't you know so easily taken advantage of where you would do some pre-thinking about what best practices should be in terms of implementing the the uh 
you know, bio data. And it seems like with hospitals, it seems like with, um, you know, in the field of medicine, they have ethicists who have maybe thought about this beforehand. And before something is implemented, they'll say, and here are the ethical guides. And with the NBA, it's like, well, we're going to implement this stuff. And maybe if the union calls us on it, we'll try to get a little ethical about it. Well, in other professions, Mike, I mean, you can imagine this stuff sort of being used to prevent people from getting insurance, for instance. I mean, these are where the ethical questions arise. Yeah, so we have rights. Trying to, right. We have rights. In the NBA, you said it's us versus them or the, the idea that it doesn't have to be us versus them. I think if you put these in isolated places, you would say what professional athlete wouldn't want to know what could make him better at what he does. I mean, we see this anyway. Athletes regulating their diets, their training regimens are so detailed and meticulous. The evolution of pro sports in the last 30 years has been one where athletes treated themselves and their profession pretty casually to one where every second is micromanaged in terms of how performance is measured and quantified and improved on. So athletes are going to want this stuff. It's where the intersection between the athletes athlete and the organization to which he owes his contractual fealty, that's where it's going to get complicated. Do How can the teams be made to legally be trusted with this kind of information that could be used to regulate players' personal behavior, their private time behavior, and ultimately their contractual status with the team? Shane Battier says, I think all fluids will be extracted in five years. All fluids. Break fluid, every fluid. Yeah, I mean, I think that players Mucus. often are getting these kind of performance tests, but it's you know often in the offseason with their trainers, with their dietitians preparing for the draft. And where it gets complicated is when your employer is saying, we've got to draw your blood chain um, and we're going to test it and assess uh, – you know, how to improve your performance. And it gets into this just extremely like long time issue with sports. And it's like players getting treated like they're objects and like they're cars basically and or horses or something and not like people. And, you know, the CBA negotiation is coming up in 2017. And I'm sure that this will be an issue. Because, it absolutely will, because if we get to the point where teams say it is contractually obligated for you in order to get paid to agree to various biometric tests, that's where it becomes incredibly complicated legally and ethically. Oh, I should note, though, that in the article it says of Shane Battier, this is Shane Battier talking, a 36-year-old guy whose vices lately include pizza and a carafe of Scarecrow Cabernet before bed. No, a carafe is 34 ounces. It's a lot of, <laughs> so a if, lot of Cabernet. If he's drinking five and a half glasses of wine, I would worry. The shame of it is, I don't know if it's a shame. Uh, I obviously see why Mark Cuban is into this, and I see that it could help. There's so much ignorance in sports, and we're talking about this in the NBA realm because they seem to be the smartest. Maybe it's a function of the fact that they only have 12 guys to worry about. It's not this huge battleship. They could be much more progressive. It's probably a function of they have younger owners, a lot of owners who've made their money in industries other than, you know, like owning a steel mill or owning a football team. I think it's like a third in the NBA now have made their money from technology or, or right. computer. Right, so they're more analytics-driven. Get all that. And it's good that we get to a point where, you know, NFL teams don't think it's proper to ask uh, uh, Des Bryant, is your mother a prostitute, in their evaluation of of a potential draft pick. like it Well, they be... could implant a chip in him where they could tell if his mother was a prostitute. Yes, the, that's right. Cut out the middleman. And, middle and carafe consumption. So yeah, there's a lot of promise to this. It just seems a little 
not as well thought out as it could be. I mean, the, this is being written, the article, the tone of it, and I think it was the proper tone, is that there is a tension here. And the tension is not being acknowledged or at least being poo-pooed by management. And it seems like there'd be a way to institute this by saying, oh my gosh, what a brave new world we're entering without the, you know, Huxley... Huxley overtones. Of the I don't know. It world. sounds like management is genuinely interested in this sort of in the same way that management became interested in analytics, statistical analysis, the view cam at the top of the arena. And that ultimately, you know, as with all of these advances in professional sports are going to lead to conflict. This one is particularly rife with potential you know, conflict in the, in the minimum because it is about these issues that have also been touchstones in sports for the last two decades, drawing blood, whether for HGH or other sort of drug testing. You know, this is the latest confluence of technology and health and data that we're going to be seeing for, you know, for a long time. Well, there's apparently not like a big to-do about drawing blood in the Premier League. Apparently, they're drawing blood all the time. Not just Luis Suarez. Hey, ho. He's not even in the Premier League anymore. But I think there are two reasons that teams would be interested in this. And number one is the same reason that they're interested in preventing guys from entering the NBA draft before they're like 42 or whatever the age is now. It's because they want to minimize risk. And so that, I think, is a very thorny thing. Like you had... It's um, not quite as altruistic as NBA front offices might want to pre- present. Oh, yeah, it. of course not. And you had the Eddie Curry precedent um, back in the mid-2000s where I think the Bulls wanted him to get this genetic screening to see if he had a heart, heart abnormality in order to get a contract extension. He ultimately refused and signed with um, a different team. So I think that's kind of the specter that's being raised here is the idea that you know we'll administer these tests before guys get drafted and, oh, something came up in your genetic testing. I guess you won't be getting a... Big contract. Right, you're uh, more, you're, will you, sir? You might get an injury when you're 28. Therefore, yeah. we're not going to draft. And then, then the second reason mm-hmm. I think is more what you were alluding to, and it's the idea of okay, we have Andre Iguodala, who's like a high performance machine, and we want to get the most out of him, and we want to know how to tune practice exactly to his needs, and we want every player to be maximized. And it's just like you know the Phoenix Suns invest a lot in their training staff, and they get like. Steve Nash and Shaq to be able to like this is like kind of the next iteration of that and teams lose so much money every year to guys being out on the DL or injured reserve or whatever it is um, and so you can totally understand why they would want to invest in in biometric stuff like that and the and you can understand why an athlete would be interested in applying it to himself and Mike can we end the segment by having you be Chad Ford after being injected into the bloodstream of a draft prospect a la interspace <laughs> this guy's liver, the comps I could think of, are Larry Bird and Elgin Baller. Now, I'm looking at the lungs. Great lung capacity. I'm thinking uh, Lance Armstrong mixed with a Maria Tallchief. That's the comp. <laughs> Great job, Chad. Appreciate that. You're welcome. I'm very small, however. <laughs> tremendous, tremendous uh, upside, though. I'm not sure I want to be in an NBA prospect's liver. Well... You might not have any choice in a few years, Stefan. That's right. Our membership program, Slate Plus, uh, you can become a member by going to slate.com slash hangout plus. We'll shrink you down. We'll inject you into your favorite Slate personality. I've I've done it. It's fantastic. You'll love it. You know, just don't question it. Just it'll be great. It could be Um, it could be a positive for both of us. It could be. 
Um, but membership, along with allowing you to be injected into, you know, Julia Turner's bloodstream, um, it allows you early access and discounts to events like the upcoming East Coast Superfest in New York. It's on November 17th. We'll be there. Politics, culture. It'll be a great show. Uh, you also get subscriber-only podcasts, sometimes full transcripts of podcasts. So uh, David Plotz did this long interview with Stephen Colbert that gets into detail. Colbert's out of character about what he does every day to prepare for a show. It's really, really great. Um, and there's also a complete transcript on Slate Plus for members that has all the questions, all the answers, so you can read it as well as listen. Um, so go to slate.com slash plus, sign up. We'll get the credit for it. You love Slate. You love us getting credit for things that maybe we deserve, maybe we don't deserve them. Let's not arbitrate that. Let's not adjudicate that. Just go to slate.com slash plus. You'll be glad you did. Joining us for our last segment is Bob Ryan, the longtime sports writer for the Boston Globe and the author of the new book, Scribe, My Life in Sports. How's it going, Bob? Uh, doing real well. Fine. Thank you. Um, let's start by going back to the beginning of your career at the Globe. Let me take you back to 1968. You and Gammons started at the Globe on the same day. Brian Curtis had a great piece for Grantland that described how the two of you, each in your own specific way, came in and shook the place up with your passion for baseball, in Gammon's case, and basketball in yours. Can you tell us what the Globe was like when you started there? It was in the process of changing from a reasonably respected local institution that had kind of separated itself from the competitors. And during the 20th century, of course, there were many competitors uh, in all over America in newspapers and becoming one of the great American newspapers thanks to the energy force that was Tom Winship, one of the great editors of the 20th century. And Tom Winship, though not a sports knowledgeable person, other than, uh, I think, yachting and polo, you know, uh, he's, he's kind of a blue blood kind of guy, but a man who believed that the sports, he recognized that the sports department played a very important role in Boston, and he, he emphasized that uh, he wanted a good sports section. So that's number one. I walked into a paper that was becoming more and more creative and, and, and more and more uh, interested in, in sending people out to do stuff. And secondly, uh, it was a writer's paper, not an editor's paper. And in those days, I don't think the ratio was in favor of the writer's papers as opposed to the editor's papers. So Peter and I were fortunate because we were, we were these uh, energetic, yeah, kind of creative guys that were allowed to kind of run free and write the way we like to write. Naturally, there was some governing from the desk. The desk was a kind of paternal, reining us in a little bit when we needed to be. But generally speaking, we wrote in a style that was not, would not have been welcome in, in many, many American newspapers. And we were both very grateful for that. Yeah, when you talk about that style, I mean, the thing that, that I remember as a, as a teenager and a, and a 20-something when I moved to Boston uh, shortly after college was that you'd open up the Globe Sports section and, you know, there'd be these full-page Sunday notes columns mm -hmm, I mean, yes. that Gammons <laughs> and you and others pioneered. I mean, just the the ability to do that and to have editors that were willing to let you write 2,000 words and fill up an entire we, page we of like newsprint. We like to think, and, you know, in the absence of any evidence to the contrary, that we really, we the Globe in, in that era in the 70s, in the forefront of this whole idea of notes columns. We're not saying we had the first. We know, look, people had notes columns. I grew up reading uh, the Sporting News, and they had baseball notes columns. Bob Addy, Addy's Adams out of Washington, D.C. Dick Young ran, wrote notes columns. But we're talking about Young what ideas. you refer to, the Sunday notes columns on, on, on a sport, on the team that you covered, on the league that you covered. And in time, the Sunday Globe would have 
every single week, notes columns on, on in-season, all the major sports, plus Olympics, plus tennis, plus road racing, whatever, with Joe and Cannon. It was extraordinary. But the person who absolutely took it and ran with it, like Forrest Gump, running right out of the, ball, right out of the stadium, right in, was Gammons. And likewise, I mean, he, he was absolutely incredibly prolific and creative. And, and I kind of copied his style in terms of some of the ways that we, uh, he arranged it. Uh, and I wrote a very lengthy NBA notes column, but Peter was the, he was the trendsetter. And uh, we, we became very famous for this, and, and uh, rightly so. Flipper Anderson, Bo Jackson, people who've run out of the stadium. So now we bemoan the fact that journalism, sports journalism, is on the ropes, is dying, um, or at least that there is a rise of this quasi-journalism. I look at it a little bit different. What we've gone from, I think, is the guy like you who incorporates all the aspects of the journalist in that you had the inside scoop. You, like Larry Bird said, if Bob Ryan wanted to coach a team, he could. I know you've said, yeah, maybe that's a nice thing to say, but you don't believe it. But anyway, you had great insight into tactics and what a writer you were. Now I think we've fractured. And so there are the guys who are the craftsmen with the words. There are the guys who have the inside scoop and they never stop tweeting. We don't even know if they can write. There are the guys who do uh, analysis about what should have been done on third down. Is that such a bad thing? I think the reader in the long run benefits, uh, has benefited from this technological advance that enables all these people to have a, a space and, and then changing thinking of how to present all this news. As long as the space is still reserved for those of us who are, whose greatest strength may ultimately lie in wordsmith, that actual writing. And you're so right, the tweeting thing, it's just so all-pervasive at games. People just tweet incessantly, tweet needless stuff. You know, they single the right. Yeah, well, okay, that that's not, it doesn't need an analysis, does it? I, if you care enough to be reading the Twitter about the game, you know he singled to right. I don't understand. I look at the nature of some of them, some of the tweets during games, and I really, I, I say, why? And I, I took note of this a few years ago when I started to note that the people who are covering the games, basketball, for example, they're showing up after the game's actually started because they're too busy worrying about their pregame story. And then when the game starts, they're hardly looking at the game because they're tweeting. And I, by contrast, had a very elaborate system of, of uh, keeping a running sheet, and I didn't want to miss a basket or a play. And I would use all, have all this information, and then knowing that I would never need more than 5 or 10% of it to write the story, but I never knew which 5 or 10%, which is why you would do it. Anyway, I had no interest in anything other than watching the game. They haven't seemed to me to interest in anything but watching the game, because reporting the game and, and, and how it went and the ebb and the flow and the, and the, and the ins and outs, the game story is no longer valued. It's no longer even sought after by a lot of American newspapers. Well, you talked about what your employer valued and how important that was, and a lot of employers today will demand that writers tweet at the game. So you have to, I think, think about oh, that. part of the job requirement. The, the new job requirements are very different than the ones that we had, and, and I understand that, and that's one reason why I'm glad that I was able to do it when I did it, for whom I did it, and don't have to worry about doing it in this modern fashion. I don't think it would have appealed to me. Well, do you feel a kinship, though, with um, guys writing on the Internet now, because the kind of passion that you invested in beat stories that you wrote about the Celtics and kind of the refusal, I, I think, to play the journalistic game of like, I don't care who wins the game. I think you can see that in a lot of what folks do today. And you really kind of were pioneer innovating that sort of approach. 
Well, first of all, this level of actual writing is still very, very high, and 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 the on ESPN.com, and 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 not just the standard. Everybody's the writers are good, and not just the Grantlands, and not just the sports on sports on Earth people, but the people who write for all their various incarnations, and the people who write for CBS Sportsline and Yahoo and all. They're all very good, but what they wind up writing when they go to a game is more like our old PM stories. There are old feature stories. They're certainly and they're not necessary, obviously, and for a national audience to, that they write uh, game stories. I understand that. So the writing level can be very, very high. Uh, I'm not, I don't know, I'm just sure if I'm answering your question. But then in terms of what I, covering games, even covering games for the local paper, the people, the beat people, it just seems to me that there's just so much less emphasis on the kind of game stories that we did and, and they're trying to find other stuff. Based, all based on the incorrect assumption, by the way, of the sports editors that everybody has, in fact, seen the games. That's a fall- it was a fallacy in 1970 and it's a fallacy in 2014. Everybody hasn't always seen the game. I can't believe there still isn't an audience somewhere for people who would like to see the kind of game stories that we once wrote, but there's an assumption that they're no longer necessary. There is, because that's all I did as an NPR reporter, and people loved it. And so it would air on Morning Edition, and these games in the East Coast would end at 12.30. And like some of our list, a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily going to watch the World Series, but it's not like they don't want to know who wins. I totally agree with you. And the other thing is, even if you've watched the game, there's an audience for someone who enjoys a good description, a good analogy. You know, I tried. I, I agree with you. If you get a good lead, the middle part writes itself, and then maybe you luck out on a kicker, and that's very enjoyable. That is exactly right. And I, you know, I agonize over a lead, and I give myself about five minutes, and then I would say, well, not today, and uh, do what I call the AP lead, and then go from there. Uh, you know, and, but a lot of times, it's always easy in the playoffs because everything in the playoffs is context. Yeah. Everything is context, so it's totally easy. It's game three. Well, it's either 2 0 or 1 1. So there's a way you, you can go with that. That's no problem. Oh, absolutely. What you described is exactly the way my mind worked. And I always had this minimum bare standard of my daily work, which was I envisioned my minimum standard was a stand-up double. You know, not, you can't hit a home run every time out. You can't, when you're covering a team, you can't hit a home run every day. But you there's no excuse for popping up. But, you know, you want to line, I always look, envision Tony Perez, a one-hop double against the wall, pulling into second base. That's what I envision. And that's the minimum standard, and that's what I tried to keep all those years uh, when I was on those deadlines. Bob, I want to ask you about the relationship component in sports journalism. You tell a story in Scribe about Dave Cowan's retiring, and mm-hmm. he comes up to your hotel room, you're on a road trip, and he says, and he hands you a sheaf of papers, and you start reading it, and you realize, oh my god, this is his retirement statement, and he asks you to rewrite it, and you to get it in the Globe. He actually asks you, well, you tell the story, he asks you whether the Globe might be interested in publishing it. Well, he said he'd like to get it in the paper, and uh, as such, you know, with his own words, and I said, fine. But he did ask me to edit it, and, and I knew from previous experience he had done something for us once upon a time that he was quite literate and actually could write, and this was quite well written. But it wasn't perfectly well written. It was a little bit about paragraphing and, and maybe a couple of transitions and so forth and punctuation. But basically what I came up with in editing this thing over the 45 minutes or so it took me was uh, 85 to 90% Cowens and 10 to 15% Ryan. So, what, what, does know, that, what does it say about <laughs> the relationship between the writer and the athlete? Well, that wouldn't it, happen it today. We had known each other at that point for 10 years, literally 10 years. I had covered him through good and bad, through all his incarnations, being an MVP, quitting the team, going on a two-month sabbatical, coming back, becoming a player coach, taking a trip with him, a uh, scouting trip with him uh, when he was player coach of the Celtics uh, to uh, Reno, Nevada, and Corvallis, Oregon, to look at big men, spending time with him at his, at his house on his 
derby parties and, and, and uh, they used to throw every year in May because he's from Kentucky and it was a natural thing for him to do. And by this time, we were, you know, it's safe to say we were friends, not close, close friends, but we were friendly, friendly, quite friendly. I'll leave it go. With and so he felt comfortable. He knew me, trusted me, believed in me and felt comfortable in trusting himself to me. And that's the kind of relationship that was just natural after all the time we were able to spend together. And that includes me criticizing him at times. And, but he was a fair-minded person. And that's a relationship that I would contend that is not available to any writer today covering a team on a, for a paper. It may be possible. I, I think that the Bigfoot national people, you know, they, they claim they know these people. Stephen A. Smith and Will Bond, and Will Bond, a good friend, and Stephen A., a fine acquaintance of mine, uh, they're always talking about, well, I just talked to Kobe, and I did this. I think they know the big players, yes. I think they do with their cachet on television. But I don't think that there's a beat writer working today in any paper that has a prayer of ever having a relationship even remotely comparable to the one I had with Cowens or with Havlicek or with Nelson or with a, a bunch of other people that I covered over those years. Well, tell us about your relationship with Larry Bird. Um, and or Larry Bird. Yeah, I mean, you write in the book that for you, his arrival was if I were an art student and into the classroom walked the new professor, Michelangelo. That is correct. At that point, I had been covering basketball for 10 years. I was, had seen a lot and was comfortable and knowledgeable and, and, was, and had all the contacts a man could want and, and a comfortable life covering the NBA. I'd just gotten through the year before saying goodbye to the player I thought would clearly be the best I would ever cover. There's no way in my mind that I, my mind couldn't begin to encompass the idea that someone better than John Havlicek would ever walk into my life. And one year later, Larry Bird did. And to me, it, it, it challenged me to rise to a journalistic level, somewhat equivalent to his playing level, to try to describe this and, and appreciate this treasure that had been dropped into our lives, those of us who love basketball. And I felt that he had encompassed everything that, and personally in that body that I, would love, I loved about basketball. To me, it's not about jumping. It's about other things and uh, not about you know, being a 100-yard dash king. And he knew how to play this game as well as any forward had ever played it, and that's still true. And uh, it, was a, it was a complete delight and entertaining thing. Now, part B was getting to know him. And, you know, he came in, he was hostile, suspicious, wary of the media. Uh, he, he, he was uh, uh, just convinced that he was never going to have any kind of relationship with the media. And by the middle of the first year, he's inviting me to have dinner with this, you know, after a game with the people that had come up from French Lick, and he looks down at the other end of the table and says, man, I never thought I'd have dinner with a writer. And uh, that was the beginning of what turned out to be a tremendous relationship that he enjoyed with the press. You also write that you're not sure that he ever read a word that you wrote. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> I never, All those years, I've said this repeatedly, I had no evidence... Never asked him directly never, that, that he had ever read a word I'd written. That was not how our relationship was formed. And finally, Brian Curtis did this piece in Grantland, and, and he asked him, and basically the answer was, well, I probably did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, since you were not just the guy who was describing the plays, but you were also describing the personalities and weighing in and saying, like you just did with Florida State and Jameis Winston, like you said, you're embarrassing yourself, Florida State. Whose character, as you look back, Whose character did you get wrong, do you think? Ooh. Uh, oh, I don't know about character. There were guys that disappointed me. We don't tell you disappointed me. It was Mike Boddicker. Mike Boddicker pitched for the Red Sox, and he was such a craftsman on the mound. He carried himself 
you know, quite well publicly. He was a whiner. He was a complainer. He was a dog and my homework guy. And he did one thing that was unconscionable. Uh, we have a, a, a well, well-known, well-respected, totally beloved uh, local reporter for WBZ AM radio, John Miller, who who's, has cerebral palsy. And he's, he's a brilliant person. He's a, yeah, he, and he's still working the games. And yeah, he has that John's deep voice. And, and yeah. one of the nicest people yep. on earth. And he chose to make public fun of mimicking him once, which I thought was utterly appalling. The only person I ever knew that would ever do that in a play. That, that bothered me. I mean, this is just, you know, you know, I'm not really prepared to answer that question, but, that, but that, that's always bothered me. And I, I really wanted to think so much more of Mike Boddicker. Let's uh, close it up by asking like a philosophical question here. Do you ever think about what or how your life would have been different if you had been in a different city at a different time? The Celtics had been total shit, or if you had been like the Indiana Pacers, well, be right yeah, We wouldn't be having this conversation if I had gone to the Washington, gone to Georgetown instead of D.C. And I, and I was originally rejected at Georgetown, and then allowed in when my college placement director at prep school called them and said, "What are you doing? He's our best candidate." And they said, oh, "All right." And then I got angry and sulked, and I went home and I said, "The hell with them! I'm going to D.C." <laughs> if I, if I, and that's the truth. That's how I went up to D.C. It's sort of supposed to Georgetown in 1964, if I'm covering the Washington Post and I'm covering the Bullets in 1970, or if I even would have even really had a chance to do so, which is probably doubtful, because what I, the way I got my job was absolutely unprecedented at age 23 to be covering a, a, a major professional uh, basketball team. No, it's the Bullets as opposed to the Celtics. Let's get serious. My, co- my career is stymied. It does, I got known because I was riding a tidal wave in the 70s of both the Celtics, who were rising under Cowens and company, winning two championships, winning 68 games another year, and the rise of the NBA in a city that was, uh, you know, where there's a lot of readers, and it, it wasn't in, and it was in space for me. No, absolutely, positively, my career would have been utterly different. Well, we're very glad you had a chip on your shoulder about Georgetown. It all, it all worked out. <laughs> Um, and the book is Scribe, My Life in Sports. Bob Ryan, thank you so much. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. It is time for After Balls. And we all knew when we were coming in today that we were going to just say bad things about Mike Boddicker. It was just that kind of day. It was in the air. It was in the air. Bob Ryan's Boddicker on. Bash Monday. Bob Ryan's on. He's going to talk Bird. We kind of And Boddicker. It's going to be Bird and Boddicker. So um, Rod Carew, I'm being told. Um, once referred to Mike Boddicker's arsenal of pitches as Little League Slop. That seems like another negative thing we could say about Mike Boddicker. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Mike Pesca, what's your Little League Slop? So I was watching the Jets-Patriots game last Thursday, and afterwards the uh, post-game analysis went something like this. If you told me the Jets were going to dominate time of possession, I mean, look at this time of possession statistic. They had like a two-to-one time of possession. If you'd have told me that they would have dominated time of possession, I'd sign up for that right now. But, of course, the Jets lost. Later on Saturday, the University of Missouri gains 119 yards against Florida. ESPN has this great stat that the last 95 teams to gain less than 120 yards, 94 of them lost. But Missouri won by a lot. And I don't know if anyone is saying this, but somewhere in Gainesville or thereabouts, hey, if you had told me that the Gators would hold their opponent to under 120 yards, I'd sign up for that. In fact, it was a, it was a blowout because uh, Missouri scored in every conceivable way. It was, I think, 42 to 13. And all throughout the NFL, all throughout all of sports, there's the, always the, if you had told me this stat would be true, I'd have signed up for that. Winning the turnover the, battle. 
the turnover battle is a great idea. For instance, Josh, if I had told you in the Jaguars versus Browns game, Jaguars quarterback Blake Bortles would throw three picks, Brian Hoyer of the Browns would only throw one, and you're a Browns fan, would you sign up for that, Josh? Oh, my God. In an, in an instant. And yet the Jags ran all over and threw all over the Browns. Wait, if can I, I, had can told I change you, my decision? Nah, Is not now. <laughs> if I had told you in the Dolphins-Bears game that the Dolphins would have 84 penalty yards and the Bears 15, you'd sign up for that. The undisciplined Dolphins and the Bears who aren't hurting themselves, Dolphins win handily. If I told you well, can in the you do game this between next the... one in the style of a 30 for 30 narration, what if I told if, you? What if I told you <laughs> that the Seahawks would have 25 first downs? And then if I supplemented that knowledge with the information that the Rams would have 18... And then I offered you a sheet, and the sheet had a dotted line on the bottom. Would you sign up for that? <laughs> you might. 30 for 30, how the Rams beat the Seahawks. <laughs> you know, Indianapolis actually lost the turnover battle to Cincy. So between time of possession and penalty yards and interceptions and incompletions and, oh, my God, rushing yards. Forget about rushing yards. Everyone would sign up for everything, and it doesn't always work out. I will give you two exceptions. It does seem that third down efficiency, I tried to find a team that, like, dominated third down efficiency and lost last week. That didn't happen. Maybe that was only last week. And I did do the time of possession research, and it does seem that time of possession, the team that wins that wins, has about a 60-something percent chance of winning. But that's not dispositive, right? And last year, the Texans were 2-14. and 14. They won time of possession in half their games. So maybe we should watch out for the, I'll give you an isolated stat, and then you'll sign up for this. It's basically a way of saying, well, they weren't dominated in every single aspect of the game. So if we could, if we could curb this particular trope, I'd sign up for that. Agree. Agree. I was just thinking about, you know, that's why they don't play the game on paper. Has anybody ever done like a documentary or a book called They Play the Game on Paper? And it's either about Dungeons and Dragons. Stratomatic baseball. <laughs> either about Dungeons and Dragons, Stratomatic, or maybe paper football. Yeah, that game with the little paper football. Oh, I love that game. All right. Free title out there or for anybody. They the Origami it. Hockey League. They play the game on paper. <laughs> Stefan, what's your little league slop? Mike, Josh, you know who's had an excellent baseball postseason? Greece. Like Greece has had an excellent baseball postseason. The ALCS featured Greek on Greek action. We had Nikos Markaikis of the Baltimore Orioles <laughs> against Michalis Mustakas from the Kansas City. They're excellent Greek names. Let's start with the Baltimore right fielder, Markaikis. Classic example, popular patronymic style, male first name plus a diminutive, in this case, Marcos plus Aikis. Another familiar dim- diminutive would be Poulos. As in Pharisopoulos, Chris Pharisopoulos, 1970s Jets defensive back. Markaikis has a Greek father, German mother. His bona fides are excellent. He was the seventh overall pick in the 2003 draft. Bravo, Nico. And he played for the Greek national team in the 2004 Olympics in Athens, the composition of which itself was a pretty good story that I wrote about for the Wall Street Journal. And we'll share a link for any baseball Helena files. But as on the field, Moustakas is the winner in the Greek name derby because Moustakas means mustachioed one. Ooh. Mustachioed one. Did uh, not know that. Maybe the Mustakas family knows for sure, but my guess would be that many generations ago, a family forefather earned the name thanks to facial hair that would shame a hipster. Mustakas grew up in LA, but his yaya, his grandmother, was born in Greece, and last season anyway, he hung a Greek flag above his locker in the Royals clubhouse. That was a very special season because Mustakas's locker neighbor was catcher Yorgos Kotaras, whose parents were born in Greece, but who, alas, was designated 
designated for assignment after the 2013 season and played for the Blue Jays this year. I don't know how many times you've had two Greek guys in the same clubhouse on the same team. Kotara said, well, I do. Milt Pappas, born Miltiadis Papasteriu, and Gus Triandos, Costandinos Triandos. They were Orioles teammates from 1957 to 1962, and they were battery mates, which is good, though not as good as the time a few years ago when the Red Sox loaded the bases with Jews, Gabe Kapler, Adam Stern, and Kevin Euclid. True story. But I digress. Mustache Boy was a first-round pick of the Royals in 2007. Bravo, Michali. The short-lived blog Boston Greek Sox in 2009 said that Mustakas has the ability to become a future all-star and the face of the Royals franchise. Maybe he will one day take them out of the basement of the AL Central. Oracular, you might say. Mustakas loves Greece and his yaya so much that he homered on Greek Heritage Night in Chicago this year. He was once referred to on the internet as my big fat Greek prospect and as the Greek god of pop-ups. KC fans shout moose when he comes to the plate. They should be shouting stash. All right, you might think that Mustakas alone is wearing the Evzone uniform in the Inoporo Clasico, the fall classic. Nope, the Giants have a Greek too, middle reliever Yorgos Kondos, whose last name means short. Short? He's 4-0 in the regular season, 24 appearances, 278 ERA, but Giants GM Brian Sabian and manager Bruce Bochy left him off the postseason roster, depriving Greeks the world over of a series that is 125th Greek. It is Ftu, not possible. Ftu, I say, Sabian and Bochy, you are officially on my skata list. Kondos is deep Greek. His father was born in Sparta, which earned him the nickname Spartan, which is embroidered on his glove. Kondos says that in 2007, when he was with the Yankees, he was bitching about being tired during a running drill. The movie 300 had just come out, and a teammate said the Spartans wouldn't be tired. Good story, which Kondos told on Epicurious.com, of all places, where he also noted that his mom makes his favorite Greek dishes, a lentil soup, a northern bean soup, pastizio, and a mean avgolemono soup. Mom's avgolemono notwithstanding, Kondos has a long way to go to be deemed the best Greek MLB player ever. The blog Walk Off Walk a few years ago assembled a list of them. The possibilities are so deep that Clay Bellinger... Alex Grammis, George the Stork Theodore, and Clint Zavaris didn't even meet consideration. Markaikis came in at number five. Pappas, Papas at four. Triandos, three. Eric Karos at number two. And number one, a definite surprise to all you non-Greeks, but I would have to agree, Tino Martinez. He's got a Greek mother. How come Eric Karos didn't get the Greek pronunciation? See, Eric is not a Greek name. So you're going to go native on the first name. You don't get the... Karos last name, but I'll say it anyway. That's uh, probably generous of you. If uh, Boston Greek Sox still existed, they would be totally blogging about oh the segment. Oh my God. They would be blogging they might nonstop come out of retirement. during the playoffs. What's your Little League slop, Josh? It is not about Greeks. Um, dodged a bullet there. No, no overlap. But it is about uh, Joe Lewis, the boxer. He's one of the most famous fighters of all time. He's known as also one of America's first black sports heroes. But what I did not realize until recently is that he was also very important in this country's golf history. A June 1936 story in the Chicago Defender noted that Lewis had broken 100 in golf, despite playing uh, fewer than 20 rounds competitively at that point in his life. In another story from uh, that period, the Brown Bomber said that he had three vices, the movies, golf and vanilla ice cream. This was written while Lewis was training for his first match with Max Schmeling, which he would lose. And after the fact, he was criticized for spending too much time on the golf course, too little time training. 
Two years later, Lewis did knock out Schmeling in a rematch at Yankee Stadium, cementing his legacy in the ring, and he was not criticized for playing too much golf before that fight. But 11 years later, the Baltimore Afro-American noted that Lewis's managers attributed his sorry showing against Jersey Joe Walcott to the champion's constant presence on the links for six months last spring and summer. Although tramping the fairways did strengthen his legs, it was detrimental to the hitting muscles. And his inability to fire punches with his former lightning speed was attributable to the tightening up of his punching muscles by the different swing used in golf. It's science, people. Um, but Lewis... <laughs> that sentence has to be within, a set, within one sentence of a reference to the humors in the blood, yes? <laughs> I'm sure it was, yes. Uh, Lewis... Continued to play after he retired from boxing in 1951. He occasionally won titles, actually, on the black golf circuit. Lewis started his own tournament for black golfers, the Joe Lewis Open in 1941. He was known for giving monetary support to black golfers as they tried to further their careers. A 1947 news story, though, noted that women were barred from the field at the Joe Lewis Open after being allowed entry the previous year because of several disputes centered around women competitors. One particular instance that caused the committee to frown on the gals was the disturbance created by a young woman who denounced the prize she was given. So women always denouncing their prizes. Gals. Um, You meant gals. I did mean gals. But back to Joe Lewis and his accomplishments. It's amazing. I I didn't know this fact. He broke the PGA Tour's color barrier. It was Joe Lewis. In 1952, he was invited to play at the PGA Tour San Diego Open by the tournament's sponsors, but was initially barred from competing due to the PGA's ban on black players. Lewis termed this the biggest fight of his life. He was quoted as saying in reference to PGA President Horton Smith, I want the people to know what the PGA is. We've got another Hitler to get by. Uh, Lewis was ultimately allowed to play in San Diego as an invited amateur, becoming the first black man to play in a PGA co-sponsored event. But black pro Bill Spiller was still barred. They said Lewis can play because he's an amateur, but we're not allowed to have black professionals. Um, Lewis said at that point he would continue his fight to eliminate racial prejudice from golf, the last sport in which it now exists. Black players like Charlie Sifford would occasionally get opportunities to play in tournaments, but it took another nine years until 1961 for the PGA to remove completely its Caucasian-only clause. Lewis died in 1981, but you can play on the Joe Lewis Golf Course in the Chicago suburbs today. It was named after him back in the 1980s. Um, And Lewis's son, Joe Lewis Barrow Jr., runs a golf nonprofit called The First Tee. It was founded in 1997, focused on teaching life skills through golf to kids from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. I didn't know any of this about Joe Lewis. How could I not know this? Shame on you, Josh Levine. Although, Stefan, I asked you like last week, I was like, does everybody know about this Joe Lewis stuff? You didn't know either. Nope. So I felt a little bit better. All right. We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and Listen in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating, por favor. Uh, become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Fuldo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zombo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.